What am I? What is the relationship between my mind and my body? The mind-body problem is an age-older problem. One of the questions you ask yourself, are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and which things that happen in addition to all the physical process in your brain? Or are they as themselves just some of those physical processes? And what about gut feeling, instant? How we can anticipate uncertainty and predict situations before it happens? Do we understand why that happened to us? So when it comes to design robots or soft robots, one of the questions we can ask, should the brain and the body evolve at the same time? Should it be designed in a supervised way or open-ended way as we have in our nature? What kind of design we should aspire for? Optimal or adaptable? One of the questions we can ask, how do these robots can function at open-ended environment and anticipate the uncertainty? What if there's damage happening to the brain or the body? How they can adapt to each other in this scenario like that? What we are still lacking in designing robots to achieve the embodied intelligence? In this series, we are going to interview researchers from interdisciplinary field to answer these questions and trying to understand what are the missing pieces so that we can achieve embodied intelligence. And what kind of tools or series we need to develop for solving the dilemma of mind-body problem. First of all, we would like to say thank you for Professor Fumia Lida for initiating the International Workshop in Embodied Intelligence, as well as this podcast series idea as a part of the workshop. It was the first time in our field to have such a great event to stitch all the leading researchers and ask the basic questions and what could be the direction for achieving the embodied intelligence. I hope you enjoy listening to this series, and here's the interview. Thank you. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Stone. Thanks so much for joining us in the Embodied Intelligence Podcast series. Such an honor to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Marwa. It's a wonderful job you're doing with this podcast, and I hope more people listen to it. It's great for building this community. Thanks a lot. I deeply appreciate your words. So maybe a first step we can ask you, how you would like to define yourself, because you're first time in this podcast here. How would you like to define yourself for the audience, maybe first time listening to you? So I would like to say that I am a materials engineer that mm. kind of um, wants to grow robots from the bottom up. Or maybe another way to say it, I would like to farm robots the way that you would farm either bacteria or plants or algae nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what could be the first uh, soft robot robot you built? Uh, if you have, uh, you could like to share with us the first robot you built. Yeah. Well, I think there are a number of robots that uh, could be just invisible, like, you know, the size of bacteria. But um, even if they don't reproduce a lot of the functions of the bacteria, they may be able to produce enough that there are so many beneficial type of bacteria in our bodies that if we can grow some of these type of robots, we can do a lot of things with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a series about embodied intelligence. Firstly, how, how we would 
define or how he sees embodied intelligence from the perspective what is actual embodied intelligence is what people want to know what is embodied intelligence well um i guess it's the idea that intelligence is spread out throughout the body rather than just concentrated in the brain maybe that's more of a human problem rather than like a general nature problem that a lot of us uh, i guess maybe partly from culture more recently have uh, started to think that intelligence is all in the brain but uh, i think there's a very you know plenty of evidence that actually intelligence is spread out throughout the body in many many different ways so um parts of the body of yours i mean and all kinds of creatures could be clever by themselves rather than actually centralized only in one place mm -hmm. is that yeah. yeah that's interesting part and then i think maybe you could be a question here about people huh? should the brain and the body evolve at the same time because we see as you mentioned some creatures you don't have a brain and exhibit intelligence with the body but when it comes to robots should we design the brain and the body evolving at the same time, that's the first part. So maybe we can ask here. Well, I think uh, for sure there will be interactions, uh, but much like maybe we don't think about exercising sometimes enough and how exercise could help our brain. And uh, in fact, it does. Uh, similarly, I think people could think a lot more about uh, designing the bodies of robots separate from the brain and yes for sure after that i mean mm. having ways that you can control and not control um are important but but some of these trends have been going on and not to say that people don't do that i mean even since the 80s um or rather early 90s i guess people have uh, started to do some of this research in passive uh, dynamic walking so I'm not too sure if you've heard of this uh, passive dynamic walking, but it's the idea that you can have a structure much like a human skeleton. And while before it was almost impossible thought, to control this kind of bipedal walking, it was possible to design some structures that without any kind of electronic motor controls, they could walk by themselves, just the way they were connecting with tendons and tissues. So mm -hmm. I think this is the idea that you can have something that has almost no brain, or no brain at all, and yet can perform a lot of clever functions that it, it's a question partly of how do you go about solving the problem. So if you have the wrong structure, you need to expend a lot of control and intelligence on trying to control something. But if you have the right structure, you can do it without almost any extra control. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. Thanks for sharing this perspective. And maybe quick question here as well. Um, if the brain, we have the brain and the body here, if there's damage happening in the body, right. how the damaged body can adapt to the brain or damaged brain, how the damaged brain can adapt to the body? How do you see this kind of design process so that if we go to an instruction environment or niche places, so we don't know anything, uh, how we can adapt the damages happening other in the brain and the body to adapt to these changes? Should we design them in supervised way or open-ended way as we have in nature? How do you see this process of the damage happening in one part so that we can still have these functionalities we expect? 
Well, it's a very interesting question that you're raising. And I think this is the kind of question that if, especially if you have uh, large robots, maybe that you're trying to do some repairs with uh, rescue missions. I mean, this is just yet another functionality to design for. I mean, it's not a common one. I mean, most things uh, that you know don't really have a way to, to you know, perform very well when you have half the body missing. But actually, um, there are a lot of uh, creatures. Um, and one just uh, recently I watched a movie called uh, My Octopus Teacher. And uh, it's uh, something on Netflix that uh, has beautiful footage of uh, somebody who was a fan and then actually has uh, incredible footage of octopi. But one of the scenes that you can see there is even if you have part of the octopus, I mean, one of the tentacles uh, eaten, uh, then they can regrow those tentacles. And so here is a fairly intelligent creature. It's one of the uh, great examples of fairly intelligent creature where the body itself is fairly intelligent. It can sense, actuate, camouflage in texture, color, and yet it can regrow those parts of itself uh, within weeks. You know? So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to robotics, for example, here, but something is still missing pieces. If we wanted to deploy that, taking account different environment and the tasks we want to do and the brains by how do you see the connection with the species in our field, the connection between the brain and the body and the tasks we have to do, like manipulation, etc., and also the environment that's changing is we don't know about it. So how do, do you see the current uh, approaches we have? Do you think there's something missing here? or something we don't give much attention, we are not focusing on yet to be considered uh, to achieve embodied intelligence? I think there are, I mean, certainly a number of things uh, missing. I think this is a newly developing area. So I think there are lots of perspectives one can take, but uh, let me see if I can take a stab at this from a slightly different angle. I mm. think uh, rather than one particular thing missing. I'm not sure if it's just one you know, thing missing. It's, it's about how do you look at what robots are. And I think much of, much of what robots have been until the last couple of decades have been, have been a way to say, here's an electronic brain here we can try to substitute our brain for it, you know, um, with it. And so here's also a body that is a metal body. And that's how we've imagined robots for, for centuries, but, you know, not for centuries, more like for a century, but, but still uh, these two are not necessarily uh, similar to what's happening in nature. So, so a couple of things I might say is one, this new trend of soft robotics is great, but a lot of the robots are still grown, I mean, rather from the top down, the way they're fabricated in factories. So finding out ways that we can grow robots is something that probably will be a big uh, difference you know, in the field. And I think it will be a lot more sustainable. So it will be the kind of thing that will definitely impact the environment in a different sense that Right now, when robots, you know, finish their life, they, they're just like a lot of different electronics and other machines that uh, could or, you know, mm. should be recycled. Whereas um, uh, 
the impact on the environment starts even way before the robots are made. So because these things are made top down, there's a lot of waste that is generated every time you make a robot. Especially if you think about the electronics, all of these things generate thousands of times more waste than, than they are actually. Um, mm. So, I mean, there's uh, an article about the 1.7 kilogram microprocessor, you know, rather than being two grams, there's almost two kilograms of input to make that kind of processor. And so that's the kind of thing that uh, I think could change quite a lot because a lot of things in nature grow. And I think similarly, a lot of things in robotics could be made to grow and then later decompose and then uh, not having so much of a trace on the environment, but may made for purpose, but being able to also be made growth of being very cheap and very few resources used to make them. Mm. That's a really excellent point. Yeah. And maybe from your research work, what's something maybe still challenging to achieve what you mentioned? Because you mentioned very interesting uh, features we're looking for. For your work, what could be still challenging to achieve that or technological roadblocks in the field in general? So maybe you kind of start from your research work to achieve that but something still so challenging to do what he mentioned in terms of the feature you, you highlighted now. Well, um, growing robots is actually only a very, very recent kind of trend and uh, something that I'm trying to start because a lot of things that um, people are doing in several areas probably converge on this kind of point, uh, but uh, People are looking at it from different perspectives, from a synthetic biology perspective, from a self-assembly perspective, and um, very few attempts are able to do something where you go from a molecular kind of state where you have single molecules to be able to assemble something large that perhaps could be even macroscopic and you can see by naked eyes or at least microscopes. These are the kind of things that are big challenges, grand challenges right now, where, I mean, of course, uh, there's been huge advances. People have gotten Nobel Prizes for molecular machines. And I think it's exciting to see how from signal molecules you can get functionality. But uh, a lot of those efforts are still kind of on the frontier of how you can take some functionality like that and translate it into functionality that you can interact with. Mm -hmm. And when you see the robots we design now, what do you think maybe you have to consider in that case of the, maybe the controller? For example, some people say that we have to simplify the controller. Others say that when we see like the dead fish swimming upstream and have this all for free and a dead fish can really swim in nicely and it's really dead. So do you think in, in robotics, the way we design, what's something you think we have to, um, yeah, consider when it comes to the brain and body design. Do you think that other missing pieces like the gut feeling, for example, we speak about in other series about the gut feeling, how we can have the right body and the right everything and the right environment, but something tells us there's something off here. How we can do that in robotics so that you can have this intuition or prediction? Well, uh, I guess maybe again, my my perspective here is not exactly the standard robotics perspective because a lot of times when they think uh, robots, people think of large humanoid robots, you know? Mm -hmm. 
something that maybe the size of you or or bigger and then can can move cars or whatnot. Um, perhaps the thing that I would like to offer perspective on is how one can think about robots that are really small and tiny and trying to reproduce some of the functions that are of molecules and uh, um, inside our muscles or how we could try to, to do nanotechnology type robots so that they can also perform things that are similarly done in nature but we can do them artificially. And so this is the place where whether it's something like a gut feeling or um, figuring out basically a lot of things about the natural world and how they work, I think is very, very important. Just like the, the, um, the passive dynamic walker that uh, people figured out about the structure and how the structure itself could inform the way that we build robots. And now, even with all the sophisticated electronics people have, people still use these type of concepts of how to make the structure of a walking bipedal robot because it makes everything much more efficient. So even if you could control things much more complexly, actually you are spending much less energy if you have the right structure. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I think in the small world of micro and nanorobots, one of the things that I think people really need to build up right now, and that's one of the things we're trying to do in our lab as well, is uh, figuring out what are the minimal requirements for certain type of function? What are the minimal requirements for moving? What are the minimal requirements for sensing and actuation? Yeah, how you can sense yourself even. What are the minimal requirements for being able to shape yourself like, uh, like a living cell and uh, achieve morphogenesis? These are the things that um, biology has solved in some ways, but one of the things that we find is biology often has come up with these universal solutions that are no living things, but they're very complicated from an engineering point of view. And it turns out, surprisingly, but it turns out that for many, many of these separate questions that I listed, the answer is a very, very simple system can reproduce those kind of functions without having to have the huge complexity of biology. So I think these are some areas where one could really look and learn about principles of movement, of energy storage, how you can harvest energy from your environment and then use it for a useful purpose and uh, move and uh, camouflage without having to have something that is the magic of life. Mm. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing this uh, questions. Very interesting questions. Maybe a quick question here, business that. When we design this robot in that case, should we go for optimal design or adaptable design when we try to do the robot that should be evolving in different environments? Which technique we have to go for, adaptable one or optimal one in that case? Huh. Well, uh, depends on what kind of resources you have. <laughs> I think if you are trying to be the athlete that uh, that wins the the World Cup, you know, mm. or, or rather, you know, some kind of the the world competition in some discipline, you probably are trying to be optimal and trying to win. Yeah. So in that case, yeah, go for optimal. 
But if you think that you're strong enough and then that you're going to have a lot of different conditions and then you have to do this or that. And um, in a lot of today's environment, it's not a single task. It's not a single competition. Mm. If you think that you might get damaged during your rescue mission, then might as well try to do optimal. But I think it's not, uh, I don't think that's a, a single kind of option. I mean, I think if people have the option, yes, they probably will design for adaptability. I'm not sure if people are. Mm. Um, I like this perspective, yeah. Some people say adaptable because in the environment, we don't have optimal, so it's adaptable, so it's not perfect. So, and that's interesting that you have this view. So, yeah. If you have more resources, make it adaptable. But I think <laughs> if you're clear what the task is, probably optimal is, is what people go for. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So since we close the end and I'll have a few questions, maybe the first one when you have this kind of helicopter view on what we do now, the effort to embed intelligence. Do you think there's something we have also to be considered? For example, in this series, we have Professor Hirishi, he, who did Android resemble himself. And he say, say that there's two modalities. Um, he made an Android uh, that resemble himself, the same copy as himself. Uh -huh. And he said there's two modalities to create this human presence. And he said the body, the shape, and the voice. And that was interesting. He was the only one to say that uh, in his views, how we can create this embodied intelligence to, to interact with human, the voice and the body, the appearance or the presence, how we looks like. For uh -huh. you, do you think there's something you think beyond the brain and the body, another component we have to consider so that we can create human-robot interaction or just kind of yeah, the level that we create uh, as we are human. Do you think there's something also, a component we have to, to add to the brain and the body? Mm. <laughs> I'm not too sure any particular, any particular part is so, Mm. I mean, I've seen a number of robots and people, again, are taking many, many approaches in this area um, for very practical reasons. People want to interact with robots. There are a lot of uh, efforts in making more humanoid robots. Uh, so making uh, people, robot interactions more natural. And so how do you resemble that? Well, you can actually uh, mimic a lot of gestures and uh, facial expressions by a few very cartoonish like uh, simplifications of the movement of the eyes, eyebrows, mouth, mm. things like that. So in a very cartoonish way, people have done that very successfully. And so people start to interact with these like doll-like robots, but in a much more uh, kind of affectionate way. And, and I think uh, there's a lot of potential for doing this kind of thing for robots that may have to interact with patients in hospitals, in nursing homes, in, in uh, hotels, you know, there's examples where people have done that. But I think uh, rather than focusing which, which are the kind of features, yes, I think uh, a more natural voice, uh, facial expressions, you know, having some artificial intelligence that can ask the right questions, you know, when people ask questions and then they can do some answers. All of these are part of us. So I don't think there's any one thing that is uh, particularly missing. I think people are making rights in all of these things. 
One thing that I think is very curious, I mean, as far as large robots, so even though I work in small robots, I'm quite interested in the following thing about large robots, which is a lot of precision is increasing, increasingly increasing, uh, so that uh, one day soon we'll have the dexterity and the kind of precision, hopefully, that may be possible for robots to follow the instructions enough to reproduce themselves. So if you have the right precision, and I think here precision is one of the things that is key, you may be able to have a robot reproduce itself. And that to me is really exciting because it's a type of like second life that we may be able to start. And plus it's also very curious because it's a kind of life that's not even based on a carbon life form. It's, it's a silicon, electronic, other kind of metal life form but I think it would possibly, with enough understanding of the real world and the ability to have some kind of uh, organizing principles, metabolism, being able to, to gather materials and reproduce itself and um, even have some inheritance, you know, from the things that are producing and maybe improving. This is the kind of thing that uh, people have dreamt for a long time. And I think uh, it may even be our future. I mean, people have tried to write something about that for, for a few decades, Moravets, uh, other people. But, but now I think we are at the threshold of whether this kind of precision is possible. And if it is, then, then I think it's, it's quite possible in a limited way to say we might be able to create a second type of life on Earth. That's very interesting. So maybe I can ask you that case, if we go for the Brexit perspective of like electronics or something like biohybrid design, but something you think now we don't understand or hard to understand so that we can create robots, create robots or a second life from what we have. But something still we hard to understand. Is it a theory, how it work? Or maybe technology, we don't have it. Well, uh, like I said, uh, for the large robots, um, being able to try and uh, figure out how to manufacture things top down. And one of the first things is to figure out, can we have this precision reproduced. And I think if, if there's a way to work on the precision and actually have enough instructions for a simple type of robot to, to reproduce itself, that will be a very good achievement. But uh, one of the things that uh, I have found and, and actually have been interesting from the small perspective of uh, what is life, because I think we may be able to also create lifelike or life, you know, on the small scale and the size of um, cells and bacteria. And so then um, being able to do something like that from artificial materials is uh, something that's both exciting, but also awe-inspiring. I think there may be some dangers. And then you think how one could uh, do that, but still be responsible. Um, so I would like to answer kind of in two parts. I mean, for the large kind of robots, I think what is possible is to think and have some ways for a robot to reproduce itself from available structures, materials, factories that are all there. And so in a very limited sense, to be able to reproduce itself. But I think in some ways, even if that happens, it will not be immediately all that exciting because they will be relying on the fact that you have a lot of these materials like pure alloys and metals and particular plastics that are all functionalized and made by some by us by other structures and beings and so in order to have the whole infrastructure 
made by yourself from whatever is naturally available materials like uh, would be very hard. And so it may be a kind of life that uh, is, is reproducing itself as long as the factories, as long as the extra materials are there. But because all of these things are man-made and hard to maintain, I don't think it's gonna be that exciting of a life because the natural other environment, you don't think about that. But mm. it doesn't mean that it won't be progress. I think these kind of things can progress. Once they can actually reproduce themselves, you can teach them how to go and scavenge some particular types of materials and try to make more of them. You can try to teach these, you know, how to purify materials, to build some other tools for be able to make themselves not only use the tools, but make the tools. And so eventually these kind of things could expand and you could see some other kind of life gaining in functionality. So because I'm interested in, in the question of life, I'm even editing a book called, you know, conflicting models of the origin of life it will be coming out later this year and and that's one of the things i learned there life is not really a zero one kind of phenomenon it's not a black and white thing and so i think it's the question of how do we learn all the different components that make it that that hopefully will help us one day create something like that mm -hmm. that's very interesting so since you're closing then a few questions left is first one it is something you thought would work out in your mind that you expect that that how it's supposed to work that it was counterintuitive to you when you see it working in reality either maybe in through the robot you design it's something counterintuitive or surprising behavior you didn't expect that do you have any something like happened to you in your work you, do you have the modeling in the series it works like that but in the empirical work was surprising result or counterintuitive to what you thought? I mean, certainly you get surprises in research work all the time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's uh, something maybe I mentioned before that uh, we can definitely learn a lot of things from nature and a lot of them are very surprising. We are still at the very beginning of understanding a lot of principles. I mean, I was... Uh, Thinking, for example, um, the discovery a few years ago we had about artificial morphogenesis and how we can actually start growing shapes from droplets, you know, of oil, you know, just bottom up without almost any kind of top-down interaction. Like, in fact, without any, you know, kind of restrictions of what what would happen, um, we have a system where with just two chemicals, so an oil and then a surfactant, so a soap-like molecule, you know, in water, these kind of droplets, when you cool them down, they can make all kinds of regular geometric shape one after the other. It's like a transformer kind of movie you're watching, but you can go through icosahedra and octahedra and hexagons and triangles and trapezoids and rhomboids and, and, and rods and all of this happens as if you're watching some kind of a cell go through its metamorphosis kind of cycle. But, uh, but this is the kind of thing that when you have only two chemicals, you really can understand it and you can go through the, the phase transitions that are driving it. And it could, turned out that most, much of this could be driven by just a single phase transition. And this was very, very surprising to us. And so mm -hmm. being able to, to learn about this kind of uh, physical phenomena 
I think is what will drive a lot of these bio-inspired you know, artificial life on the very small scale because with very few components, uh, you can actually build a lot of functionality. And so now we're trying to, to see what are the similar kind of um, insights that one can do about how we can do self-sensing. We have examples of uh, self-sensing or, or how we can grow the robots on how we can even grow things that have both propulsion and energy harvesting in them. And um, I'm, I'm always fascinated when, when I see something like that mm. and it's not expected. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling. Interesting, yeah. So maybe I can ask you what's your aspiration for your work when it comes to embodied intelligence. Something yeah, you think sometimes in five years, 10 years, you have these crazy ideas. What time would we think about that? Do you have any kind of thoughts to your mind, aspiration to your work when it comes to small scale robots? So, what kind of yeah, aspiration do you have or crazy ideas do you have? Yeah. Well, um, I think one of the things that I started with is uh, I think that the way that I could try and encapsulate this very briefly, which is we are trying to see how we can grow material robots. So the material itself could be the robot. So my vision is that we can farm some of these things and they'll have so many functionalities that nowadays we think of these kind of things as only possible in bacteria, other kind of living organisms. But I think it's possible to, to think of materials with so many functions that they can start to replace devices. I'm even an editor in a recently started journal a couple of years ago called Multifunctional Materials from the Institute of Physics. And that's actually the whole kind of point of this journal. In fact, the, the journal right now will have a, an article coming out very soon on uh, a roadmap for robotics. And so here you can see how materials and robots are coming together in one area and uh, finding out what is the next big thing in robotics. So that's the kind of topic that top experts in the field will contribute and uh, we're writing for what will be the next maybe decade or two in, in robotics. But coming back to the materials, I think what is exciting is that if you're having all the big robots with, with actuators and motors and tendons, you cannot really scale this down. There's no way to go beyond microns, you know, and still have this kind of infrastructure. That's why having materials with multiple functions is one of the answers, I believe. Having so the material can already we have examples where the material can sense itself, can we have a programmable movement, can uh, exhibit this kind of morphogenesis that I said. A lot of people are working on self-healing materials, and uh, much more recently we've got uh, hopefully an article coming out soon when we can just from a couple of components have. Uh, um, uh, swimmers uh, made so that you have both propulsion and energy harvesting in the same system and eventually being able to combine these things I think it will be really possible to farm robots from the bottom up from putting mm -hmm. them whether it's in the sun on a bioreactor and be able to to grow you know this kind of artificial artificial components but can have the function of living things whether we can really create life in the lab yet you know I think that's a bold question. And I think more and more people are focusing on this kind of question. I don't wanna say right now, um, because um, 
it'll probably be a few decades until we achieve that. But I really think it's starting to be something that's achievable. And when people think that this is a big idea, but it's also achievable, more and more and more people flock to this kind of field. So I really think in a few decades, this may be possible. But for now, being able to grow robots is the, the idea that I'm focusing on. Wonderful, wonderful. So maybe the first question here, um, what could be the most important quality you have gained while being in academia? What is the most important quality you have gained while being in academia? Something you gained when you're working in what you do, like persistence, yeah, believing more in, in ideas. What kind of quality you have gained that you have to maintain? Uh, should, I should I should I say the question again? I'm, yeah, yeah I'm sure, sure I can see it. Yeah, about it. yeah. yeah. Exactly. I'm asking you. What, interesting on several levels. I mean, I'm not too sure if the if the qualities I'm thinking are necessarily gained in academia. In or, general, maybe in ideas, because sometimes what we ask if we have new ideas, sometimes people afraid from risky ideas, and some people say that we gain that we have to be believe more or have a lot of ego sometimes. And people say we have less, less ego. So what could be important quality at the researcher you have gained for you as a student? And you have to maintain when you discuss new ideas or what you're trying to do. What kind of quality is important for you? I think perhaps it's, huh, it's a very good question. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm, I'm a little bit um, trying to give it uh, justice. I mean, to, to do justice to it. I am uh, I'm thinking it's perhaps a combination of curiosity and the ability to go down deeper and try to explain things from first kind of principles. Mm. Go to really simple phenomena and principles and try to explain how something happens. Because time and time again, that's one of the things that I have noticed in academia that happens and I think unlike other spheres of life it's probably one of the things that is particular to academia which is if people have the time to to look at some phenomena that are looking simple but then you can try to say how does this really work and mm -hmm. then being able to try to look at a very simple phenomenon and try to explain it people can go again and again to some simple phenomena and just understand and explain it to the deeper and deeper level. I think that's one of the things that happens very much in academia and I think it's um, very useful. But that's not to say that um, you, you don't uh, look at some of the very complex phenomena. So again, some of the things that you were asking about like embodied intelligence, there's this amazing examples in nature that uh, that involve this kind of thing. And, and I'm fascinated by all kinds of animal examples. And so being able to try and explain any kind of problem, I think, but this happens in industry, this happens in academia. It's just that in academia, sometimes you have at least the limited freedom to try and ask the random questions. Like how can a camel um, survive on salty water. It's one of the few mammals that can survive on salty water. You know, what are the structures inside? I'm really fascinated by bears and say bears can, uh, they have similar size to us. They can hibernate for a whole winter and keep a fairly high temperature 
and yet they don't drink any water for months and then they can actually even um, bear a suckle their young while they are actually hibernating. I mean, many women would love to do that, right? Like to, yeah. to give birth and to, to spend a couple of the first months not having to, to worry automatically, you know, having this yeah. uh, done. I mean, these are the kind of things that when you just are curious, you see a lot of interesting things in nature and um, try to solve the problems, try to see, can I engineer a simple system rather than a complicated system that can do this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. That's very fascinating and many questions to contemplate in life. So thank you for sharing this perspective and question as well. So lastly, what was best advice was given to you and was it life changing? And maybe something you can reflect also for the serious about embodied intelligence advice was given to you and also life changing from your perspective of the work or maybe life anything stick to you every day If you don't want to answer the question, we can rephrase it to, to advise people. Can. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, not, it's not about that I don't answer, but I don't want to answer. I just uh, don't know if this is very interesting answers or, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I remember being in grad school, for example, and uh, I, I was doing some experiments that were taking a few minutes each. And then there was a very good postdoc that I was working with at the time. And then he was just noticing me working. And then suddenly he saw, oh, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, I'm waiting for an experiment to finish so I can see what the parameters should be for doing something next. Mm. And he said, well, how, how different do you think this will be compared to what you can try to guess right now? And yeah, once in a while you might have surprises, but much of the time it seemed like at the time that I could probably guess much of the parameters that I need for the next experiment. So I could start planning. As soon as I am starting this experiment, I can already start planning the next. Whereas otherwise I was wasting half the time because it was an inconvenient period, like one or two minutes per you know, spectrum. So I couldn't really do much in that time, I thought. But then he actually pointed out to me that if I use those couple of minutes to plan the next time, then most of the time I actually could do it perfectly without having to wait. So this almost like doubled my productivity and doubled mm. what I could actually do with my life. And I thought, hey, this is something that is great. And so just like a lot of predictive design, you know, where would you put your like for, for a robot? Similarly, you can try to do a lot of things, even if you have very little time that you seem like you have to waste, but actually you may be able to do something better. So I thought that's one example, but I'm not too sure if this is the life-changing kind of thing that you were looking for. So thanks so much, Stern. I think that was very inspiring to your perspective and the questions and your passion for understanding. So thanks a lot, such an honor to have you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot.